0: Welcome to another episode of the Ladies at UX podcast. I am Adelina Costa, chapter leader at Ladies at UX Lisbon, Portugal.
1: And I'm Maria Haney leader of the Ladies at UX Salt Lake City USA chapter.
0: In today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Debbie Levitt, an experienced CX and UX expert who has been in the industry for decades. Our guest shares insights on how CX and UX work together in creating great user experiences and strategies for finding a sweet spot between user needs and business objectives. We also dive into the importance of value in design and how it can make or break a business. Debbie, This recent book, which we'll be talking about, Customer Know You Suck, explores this topic in depth, and she shares her thoughts on how designers can keep value at the front of their work. Finally, we discuss the future of CX and UX and what UX designers should be doing to prepare for these changes. Tune in for a thought-provoking conversation with one of the industry's leading experts. This episode was sponsored by Deploy.me, specialists in recruiting UI UX designers. Welcome to the Ladies That UX in English podcast, a friendly, welcoming, and collaborative organization of intelligent and curious women who push wax boundaries, develop skills, and promote talent by supporting each other. Without further ado, I would like to welcome to the podcast, Debbie. We are thrilled to have you here. Hey, thank you so much for including me. Debbie, you have quite the resume having started (laughs) back in the
1: 90s. And I saw you recently wrote a post on LinkedIn that commemorated the 30th anniversary of your company, Delta CX. And I can't wait to hear more of your generational insights regarding the development of the industry from when you started to where we are now. But before we get there, I would love if you could give our listeners a brief introduction of yourself in your own words, and if possible, can you include the story you mentioned in that same LinkedIn post about also being a band tour
2: manager and being on the road with Debbie Harry, lead singer of Blondie? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that post was to celebrate the almost 30th anniversary since I started my company in 1995, and so what happened was when I went to university, I was a music major, so I have a degree in music, but I had taken a bunch of psychology classes for fun. And when I got out of university, I was like, all right, now what? You know, I don't want to be a music teacher. What do you do with a degree in music? I don't know what my future holds. And I ended up working in the music business in New York city. And I had two jobs. One of my jobs was working in Donald Fagan's recording studio. He is known from Steely Dan, if anybody likes seventies music. And then my other job was in a booking and management agency. And they kind of collided when a band that had come into the recording studio called the booking and management agency and said hey we want to do a summer tour can you book this now I was just the secretary at the booking and management agency but it was a New York City jazz band that had a special guest singer and it was Debbie Harry from Blondie and it was yes and they ended up booking a European tour for summer 1995 which included some really famous amazing gigs and I got hired to be the tour manager and the sound engineer since I had done sound engineering school and so I ended up touring for about a month through Europe five countries with this New York City band and Debbie Harry from Blondies and then when I came home I had uh, quit both of those music business jobs and I started doing my own website company but I was like we should make websites based on what I learned in psychology class and so even though I had not yet heard of user experience it was kind of a cousin of that because I really wanted to think about how people parse information and how they move through things and make decisions when using a website. And so that was kind of how I got started.
0: Wow. I'm still completely in shock with everything that you shared and it's... No, it's amazing. And it it must be such a unique environment, unique experience, and unique way of creating something that it's not there yet, but it makes sense. So you're this is me thinking uh, your brain is already like three three or ten steps ahead of how something can really work for other people. And that is such a rewarding thing and such a beautiful thing to see. And also, as you as a founder of Death of CX, a UX and CX consulting firm specifically with all of this experience that you already have, can you give us or explain that your unique perspective and your journey of founding your own company, which is such an accomplished, first of all, congratulations, including, of course, the highs and lows that you have experienced along the way, which we all know that both are there if not it wouldn't be a reality so it would be really fascinating if you could share with us the challenges and successes that come with building and growing a business in this field
2: Yeah, sure. Again, I started building it so long ago that I know uh, sometimes people say to me, oh, tell me how you got into UX and built your company. I want to be like you. And I say, well, I did this when the dinosaurs were alive. Like you can't really copy what I did because it was so long ago. I mean, I remember when a college friend called me up and said, you have to check out this new thing called the web. You know, I think most people listening to this don't remember when there wasn't a web. And I remember when there wasn't a web. And, you know, because I'm 51. And so I, you know, it was half my life ago. And so I feel like it's sometimes just boring to talk about where I've been because it's just not as relevant now. You know, I can say, oh, yeah, you know, I started my company highs and lows, you know, same old story. But to me, the real story is the thread that runs through all of it, which is for whatever highs and lows I've had, I've been able to be my own boss and in some cases, other people boss and to call the shots and to say yes to good clients and say no to bad clients. And in some cases, choose ethics and preferences and what's important to me over money. And so, you know, there's good and bad about that. I don't have as much money as people assume, but I have a lot of happiness and flexibility that I wouldn't trade for anything else. And so I think some of my story is kind of boring and not that worth it, but I think the through line is being able to just direct my own life more and make more of my own choices and have a flexibility that some people don't have or are afraid to go for.
1: Yeah that's really interesting the flexibility of being your own And there's also the stress of that too. But is this, have always, have you ever considered a different path? Or once you went down that road, was it kind of, I'll take this, you know, warts and all the ups and the downs. I love this flexibility so much. Or were there ever times where it felt like this might not, I might need a break from this. I might want someone else to take it, you know, be the one who worries about these other things. And I just, you know, take an office job or whatever.
2: I've never wanted a break from this and I don't think I ever will, but I have taken a couple of full, Time jobs along the way, and those were not as long-lived as one might hope. The these full-time jobs, you know, didn't last more than a year. They crashed and burned. I mostly did a lot of contracting and freelancing for other companies, especially when I lived in San Francisco for some years and did a lot of work there for some companies Americans would know, and did some work for some other agencies. I used to joke I was freelancer to the stars. And so in a sense, Sense, even though I have taken these other jobs and sometimes I pop up at other people's agencies or things like that, there's always been my company in the background. Sometimes we haven't had much work, and so I'm available to help other companies. Sometimes we've had work and I'm doing my own thing. So I'm always looking for that balance. And so but no, I've never felt like, ooh, holy cat, someone take you know, take my company, please. I've never felt like that, but I was that weird little kid whose life. Life dream was I want to have my own company and I want to have a dog. And that was all I wanted in life. I never thought I would be married. I never wanted children, so I've never had children. And then people are like, Oh, you didn't have children. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, Why are you sorry? I'm so happy. And so, you know, I've taken some different roads than other people have taken. And that and everybody has to find their own. But I was that weird little kid who didn't want to be a mommy and didn't want to be this and that I always pretended I had my own company. And when people when relatives played with me or my grandma, I wanted to pretend I was a business person. And so for whatever reason, that was always my dream. And so yeah, warts and all for sure. And I'm lucky that I have a husband who also has his own business. And so we're just workaholics working eight days a week. But it means, you know, we know how to give each other space to work on stuff. And then we know how to come together. Together, let off steam and be like, you won't believe the phone call I just had. Or I guess no one has phone calls anymore. You won't believe the video call I just had. So, you know, it's a really good and I'm, I'm pointing, which no one can see on the podcast because we share a home office. So he's just like, you know, a couple of meters that way. He's just right there. He can hear me and everything. So,
1: you know, that that works out. That's great. And thanks for sharing the personal side of your journey, too. Like it's always interesting. There's always a personal, you know, factors, influencing the choices we make and when we decide to take other choices it's not always it doesn't always add up on paper when someone else is looking outside so it's nice to get a bit of that color but i have to know did you get
2: a dog Holy cats. Yeah, so that is so funny. So uh, many years ago, I did finally get a dog. That dog is no longer with us. And I was like, oh, there will never be a dog as amazing as Rita. I shouldn't even bother. And I didn't have a dog for many, many years. And when I first met my boyfriend, he and his family had just adopted two puppies, a brother and a sister. And so I was like, okay, there might be some dogs in my life. And I was like, hey, maybe we should get the girl Spade because I think she's coming into that time of her life and everyone said no too early and I said gee I'm new here I don't want to tell everybody what to do and the next time I came back to visit she had seven puppies that clearly had five different dads and so we managed to give away four of the puppies we ended up keeping three so we actually have five dogs that are all related to each other and they have their own Instagram channel so you can follow their adventures at Canetti Perfect FD, which is Italian for perfect puppies. It's C A N E T T I P E R F E T T I. Come follow my dogs on Instagram.
0: <laughs> just, you are so precious. I like it. <laughs> like, it's so. Man, it's. It, I just keep listening to you and just be like, wow. Like. <laughs> right. of oh, oh. What kind of dog is that?
2: They're they're all hunting hound mutts. Around here a lot of people have hunting hounds and they're just mixes, mixes, mixes. They've got different characteristics. Like you look at them you can see a little beagle, a little shepherd, a little this hound, that hound. They're just totally wacky mixes all over yeah there's no there's no word for it there's just (laughs) lots of different dogs happening there they're just but they're they're hilarious and they're smart and they're funny we have five very different personalities there's one for each of you out there and uh and they love to escape our yard and run all over the land because we're out in the countryside and two of them are wearing gps collars so we can figure out where they are and but they always come home.
1: Oh, that's good. I'm glad they come home. So you mentioned you're out in the countryside. Would you mind telling us a little bit about where in the world is Debbie Lovett?
2: Sure. I was born and raised in America, which my accent gives away. And I've been living in Italy for over five years. I got matched online with my now husband just over six years ago. We just celebrated six years together, even though we got married just a few months ago. Thank you. Thank you. And <laughs> he is born and Raised Sardinian, so I'm on the Italian island of Sardinia in the kind of the northeast part of it, but not by the sea, about 30, 40 minutes from the sea. And so the countryside for us is the Italian countryside.
0: Oh, it's such a beautiful part of Italy. Italy is beautiful. That's the first thing. Amazing language. And then Sardinia is
2: such a nice place to live. I got very lucky. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would move into a cardboard box with this guy, like, I, you know, I would just want to be wherever he is, so I got pretty lucky that he's in one of the most amazing places <laughs> in the world, like, what are the chances? But yeah, can't complain, put it that way. Okay, right? great. We already have the who is Debbie Levitt, who
0: are the dogs <laughs> of Debbie Levitt, <laughs> yes. where she lives. We have the everything, the juicy part, but she has such an amazing and fulfilled experience and life, personal and professional. So I think it's time for us to dive a little bit more in depth to the professional side. I already talked a little bit in the beginning about the name of the book, but I just have to say it's shockingly good. It is called, like I said, Customer Know You Suck. So you mentioned in your book that customers know when a business isn't delivered value, right? Yeah. Of course. Can you tell us a little bit more about that specifically and how can designers keep value at the front of their work.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of questions rolled into one. So for starters, I say customers know we suck because uh, customers know you suck or customers, not not you two. Uh, (laughs) But you know, customers know businesses suck. We do. No one's being fooled here. And I say that because we pretty probably all of us listening to this, if you work in UX now or you have worked in UX, you've probably been on teams that really wanted to release garbage, that really wanted to release some crappy MVP, some ideas that weren't fully formed, some bad ideas, some things we never usability tested, something someone else sketched on a napkin. And someone said, everyone sing along with me. Someone said, it's good enough and we'll fix it later. And the reality is we know that this is absolute garbage. We know it. The engineers know it. Everybody knows it. Maybe the product manager doesn't want to admit it, but at least we and the engineers know it. And we put Put it out there, and then holy cats, we're so fake surprised when this fails in small or large ways. Customers are complaining. They're sending out angry tweets. They're calling up sales to cancel or downgrade, or they're not shopping with us, or whatever it is. And it's amazing because when we go out into the world, we just hate all of it. We hate every company. I mean, there's so few companies that we truly love. Many people are fans of Apple. Okay, I get it. I love Disney. parks and resorts in Florida I'm obsessed okay fine but the rest of the world is really a tribute to rushed out garbage and the book originally was going to be called transforming toward customer centricity and then once I was about halfway done with writing it I was just sitting here one day and I was like can I call this customers know you suck because that's the bottom line and what can designers do about this it's hard in some cases designers can't do anything about this because companies are inside cycles of mediocrity, companies are okay with pushing garbage out because they think they're fast. And if they think they're fast, it's only because nobody's doing the math on how much it really cost us in time or money to have designers and PMs and engineers work on a thing and then get it out there. And then nobody calculated the time and cost of sales and marketing, trying to sell it to people or make them interested or rescue a sale. because people know we suck. Nobody counted the time or the cost of customer support representatives who had to deal with calls and tickets and chats and whatever to try to ease people's anger or tell them how to use a difficult thing or promise them we'll fix it soon or whatever the case may be. No one seems to be doing the math on this because I think if we did, we would stop saying things like, we're really fast. We're really agile. I don't think we would rush these things out and it always amazes me especially when people tell me they do idolize Apple I say well you know Apple doesn't rush out MVPs if you think Apple is so great and we can debate that if we want but let's imagine Apple is so great they don't put out MVPs they don't rush out crap and say they'll fix it later they don't avoid research Apple is famous for really understanding their customers Apple spends six percent of their revenue on R and D research and development, that's billions of dollars, not millions. And so I think that there's a huge disconnect and it starts with us telling ourselves we're better than we are. We're good enough. This will be fine for customers and they'll probably want it. They'll probably use it. That is partially why the book is there. And the book is how to helping teams and companies be more customer centric and bring the customer back into the conversation to care about quality and value and not just some crappy guess or hopeful hypothesis that we think we can get out fast. Thank you for answering all of my questions. So perfect. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> no, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just want to say, because you already explained everything, I just want to say that the first thing that came to mind when I thought of the book was, this is so provoking and attention-grabbing that it just makes sense for a customer-centric book. It makes sense. So if you have cho- had chosen the other the other title, which is a great title, but this one it just it sells because it goes Straight yeah, to the, it goes straight to the point, and it's such an effective way to convey the core message of what you're trying to do, which is that customers are aware when companies fail to meet their expectations to provide a superior experience. So you're not fooling anyone. Yeah. yeah. So it goes straight to the point and I think that it won't only shock the people that want to read normal people like us that are doing the UX work but also CEOs and CTOs whatever it is and even project managers I think it's something that they will feel connected with because it's something that it's close to them because if they don't think of this no revenue will come so I just For sure applied.
2: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And I wrote it for everybody. I didn't just write it for yes. UX. We know a lot of this. I wrote it for product managers, product owners, engineers, marketing, sales, strategists, business analysts, leaders, and executives. It To me, it's just a business book that's about the importance of customer centricity and how we get there through really knowing our target audiences. Not guessing about them, not hoping about them, not rushing out crap that we hope that that they won't hate, but doing a better job up front to really understand them and to still make that agile because agile is really about engineering being more efficient. Agile doesn't mean rush out crap and agile doesn't mean don't do good UX work. So you can be agile and still do good UX work and still not rush out crap. And that's supposed to be baked into agile. But unfortunately, many people think agile is just go fast and rush out crap and figure it out later. That's not agile that that ends up being really slow and wasteful.
1: Right. I liked in your book, you were talking about you defined Agile. I think it's from the Agile, the official Agile Manifesto. And your focus was on not continual delivery, continuous delivery, but on valuable software being what we need to focus on.
0: Right. That's what it says.
2: Yeah. Yeah, The Agile Manifesto principle one says customer satisfaction through continuous delivery of working software. But I found people get hung up on continuous delivery or working software, which is a pretty low standard if you think <laughs> yeah. about it. And they yeah. forget about it. Like, that's that's the minimum. It's like food. It's got to have food. You know, Where software has got to be working. That's the minimum yeah. standard. But I think that we have to remember the customer satisfaction part. If we're not delivering value to people, if we're not making them happy, if we're not solving their problem, then what are we doing? Which is surprisingly difficult in some business settings to
1: get some consensus on that customer centricity. So the next question I have would be, how would you, keeping the customer at the center of what your business is doing and the value you're creating and your roadmap and what you're executing on can be really challenging. And your book gives a lot of strategies. So if someone's wanting to move the needle in that direction at their business, what would you say would be some places where they could start, some starting points for changing how things have been done and changing this mindset they might be coming up against that says good enough is good enough. Enough, as opposed to we are actually solving and providing real value
2: yeah remember the business's language is money so we're not going to be able to start with fluffy cuddly words like empathy and the problem is right now a lot of designers and UX people are saying words like empathy but the empathy is unfortunately fake and it's theater and it doesn't sign checks and it doesn't pay salaries and so ultimately I think that we have to speak the business's language which means money so one place where people can start is do a little digging and see where your team or project or product or company isn't meeting its goals. Someone's got goals for this thing. Someone's measuring metrics for this thing, whatever the heck it is. Are we meeting those goals? Are we not meeting those goals? Your company probably wants to see more users, more revenue, more whatever, and less of some other things. Are we doing that? And if we're not, that's where some of our opportunities are. Hey, marketing, you were supposed to get 5% more leads this quarter. Did you get those leads? Hmm, you got 2% more leads this quarter? Why don't we take a look at that website and see why this isn't really compelling to people or as compelling as it could be. Hey, sales is having trouble when people are done with a contract with us. They don't want to sign back on. They want to run far away from us. Hey, let's do some research to learn more about people's workflows and where whatever the heck we do fits into that workflow, whether or not they're using our system. It's always better to research with people who aren't our customer. Where do, where do or could we fit into people's workflows? What are some opportunities for us? What could we be doing that will help sales sell this more often, more easily? All of these things translate into money for the company. It's not just more sales. If you can help sales sell it with fewer calls, fewer emails, these are monster wins. So again, I think a lot of people think they have to start customer centricity with, hey, empathy, empathy, delight. And I say, hold on, let's worry about that later. Let's start with the business's language. They want attraction, satisfaction, loyalty. Let's learn where those are going wrong and see where CX and UX qualified peeps can come in and plan a project and say, aha, I know how to help you get more leads. Hey, sales, let's take a look at what's going on in customer support. Wow. We have all of these problems with our system. And those are translating into people who don't want to stay with us. They're not loyal. That We can't retain them. Let's spin up some projects. Even if these aren't the most innovative things we've ever done, let's spin up some projects to fix this stuff and keep those customers. And I think that is where we can work towards proving the value of what we do without evangelizing, without talking about empathy, without selling what we do short and turning it all into a fun wacky game of Twister and a workshop. I'm I'm pretty much anti-workshop. I want to do my work. I don't want to turn my work into a dartboard sticky note adventure. So I think we have to do a lot more of reclaiming our own power, shifting away from the fluffy emotional words that businesses generally don't care about, and help the businesses achieve the goals they're trying to make. So that's not just where to start, that's kind of a, a lot of the pie, but start by finding what's broken for the business. And eventually we're going to find that what's broken for the business is also broken for the user. It's broken for the customer. That's why it's broken for the business. And we can eventually bring these things together and find those win wins where we can make something better for the customer and the business will get the wins they want also.
0: This is great. Thank you for sharing. I've been writing things like, you need to know this, you need to know this, you need do like grabbing ideas, ideas, ideas. So it was really valuable as Thanks. always. And at the, something that I would like to, to ask you is regarding, you talk a little bit about retention and uh, revenue, which is something that the company wants, but can you tell us a little bit more about the consequences of not meeting customer quality standards, being that this is something that you actually talk about also in the business?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you're not meeting customers' needs, meeting their- their expectations. There's plenty of ways to lose a customer. You can lose them in small ways where they're utilizing this less. Maybe they're shopping with you less. Or if you're enterprise or or SaaS, maybe they're not growing. They don't want more seats or licenses. Maybe you didn't lose them completely yet, but you will start seeing signs that they're not happy. Because remember, customers don't always reach out and go, I'm not happy. Let's talk about why I'm not happy. Sometimes they just say nothing and they say, well, if this company isn't that good, we'll just keep going until we find something better. And a lot of companies think that when a customer is unhappy, they're going to get a chance to win them back. And they think, well, we'll offer a discount. We'll offer a coupon. We'll offer more training. We'll offer a month free. We'll offer whatever. And sometimes you've lost them. It's too late. It's no different than romantic relationships. Sometimes it's over and no one's winning anybody back. And it's the same is true for this. You can't assume that you're going to get a chance to win somebody back. So there are definitely lots of signs that companies can look for that people are unhappy. People do run surveys. Surveys are often flawed, but they can still give us some clues. We can then spin up some more qualitative research to fill in the blanks of why. And more things that we usually don't get from surveys. But even though I don't love surveys and I don't love NPS, it can still be something that takes the temperature of our population and inspires us to create larger and better research and more qualitative research so that we can learn what is going wrong. Because another mistake companies make would be, well, we'll just send out some surveys. Ah, looks like some stuff's going wrong. Let's guess how to fix it. And it's just another slow, expensive cycle of of guesses
0: for sure thank you for sharing so Yes, we understand now the customers, we understand now the business, we understand now how can they both have a happy life, let's say it like this. I think it's also important to think now of the people that want to join this world, the CX professional or the people that want to become CX professionals. So some UX designers, as we know, and are listening right now, aspire to become CX professionals. It's such a a great next step for them. What kind of advice do you have for someone who wants to make that shift and transition to a CX role?
2: Yeah, I think that in many ways, CX and UX can be the same thing because if we really care about our customers and our users, what's the difference between CX and UX? Now, if you look at LinkedIn and other social media, you'll eventually find 4,000 Venn diagrams that says this is UX and this is CX and this is where they overlap and this is where they don't and then everyone fights each other and nothing changes. While there are multiple definitions of CX, I believe that CX and UX can be the same thing when we are strategic, when we are doing these things in a good and thorough way. So to me, many people see the user experience as the digital experience, the website, the app, the thing that we can sketch and prototype. And they think CX is, oh, wow, all the things that customer could possibly do with our company. Or sometimes they say the user experience is for the end user user and the customer experience is for the person who pays us so ultimately I don't believe in all of these splits I think ultimately we have to think about all of these people they're all in our ecosystem we have to make all of them happy I was talking to someone the other day and they said our company is pretty good at getting contract signed we're pretty good at selling it to the customer who pays us they like what we offer the end users then use our system. Them and they hate it. And I say, OK, well, ultimately, that's not a winner. You know, congratulations that you got the customer or the revenue. You're not going to have the satisfaction and you're not going to have the loyalty or retention. So I think that when people who want to move into CX, they just have to double check the company you're thinking of moving into. How did they define CX? Because to me, it's looking holistically at the full end to end journey of everybody in the ecosystem. System. The customers, the users, the partners, the resellers, installers. I don't know who's in your ecosystem, but it might be multiple groups of people or types of customers. But there are some companies who say, oh, CX, that's our call center. And then you'll go, oh, um, uh, ooh, this job looks a little weird. Yeah, don't apply to that. So there are some people who think CX is the call center or CX is the marketing department. But I think increasingly you're seeing things that say CX really have to do with things like service design and understanding the end-to-end journey and looking for the smaller optimizations or the larger innovations that will ultimately make customers happy make them want to join us and make them want to stay
1: it's kind of funny. I, when someone who is joining UX or interested in UX and they ask me about titles, product designer, UI slash UX or CX, I kind of want to be like, it's something that it's a little bit of a tempest in a teapot. Only people in this field kind of care about it. It really doesn't mean that much. You know, it's a lot more important to know the kind of work you want to do and the impact you want to do and pursue that. And then, you know, work to get the title to match the work you're doing, as opposed to having that be <laughs> something that you spend a lot of time worrying about, are the street is not good at the title thing in my opinion it just doesn't
2: no definitely not and again there's only so much I want to die on that hill at this point when there's so many other things that we need to be talking about and fighting for or fighting against I'm less hung up on the title if someone wants to call me a UX researcher that's fine if someone wants to call me a CX architect that's fine I, li- I joked on my YouTube show at one point or the Delta CX YouTube channel if people haven't checked it out yet. I joked once we did a brainstorm on what should our titles be. But like, okay, let's start with um, an adjective. Everybody put adjectives in this mirror board and then we started with nouns. Okay, everybody put nouns in this board and now put job titles. Put job titles in this board. And we put them together and we said, okay, what could this be? And I jokingly, half jokingly said, I want my title to be strategic strategy strategist. <laughs> because it's like, I felt like no matter what what you have me do, that's at the core of what I do. I always want to be strategic about things, look at bigger pictures. So whether you're having me do research or design or product strategy or something else, I just want to be a strategic strategy strategist. But if someone wants to call me UX designer, I guess you can. The downside is I'm a terrible artist. And as soon as people hear designer, they think I make pretty things. And I definitely don't. And so I think our titles could be better. But before I die on the hill of titles, I really would rather see better job descriptions. I don't like how much people try to combine all of our jobs into one. 10 years ago, our jobs were already combined. A UX designer or UX architect was already an information architect, an interaction designer, and a prototyper, and sometimes a usability tester. And a researcher was already a combination of multiple skills, multiple tasks, multiple things that sometimes now we split out as separate jobs. So to try to tell people you have to do all of these things and do them really well, I think is unreasonable. So I'd rather fight more for the job definition than what we call that person.
1: Right. And I've seen you comment in your writings and some of your discussions that you share videos of on YouTube and elsewhere, having qualified people do the right thing to produce the best outcomes. (laughs) which sounds like it, it makes Imagine total common makes sense. sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in the context of our work, title inflation or confusion sometimes makes it feel, you talk a lot about democratizing UX or your, how you feel about well, it. I should democratizing. say. Democratizing, yeah. And yeah. don't do that, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the title confusion, I think, contributes to some of the problems or the reasons why other people feel like that's something that's easy to do. Oh, someone else can draw a pretty picture. Okay, you can also do the UX oh, you know how to run a survey, then you're also a UX researcher, those things. So I like how you have taken this title confusion and run its course to, okay, here's where it also creates these other problems, the ways it affects. So you have a really interesting perspective of the field and how it's evolved over time. I think that's interesting. Thanks. Yeah, but you've mentioned a little bit about doing UX research. You talked a little bit about surveys and just other ways to do a temperature check. I know that you are fond of a lot of different ways of getting UX research beyond those kind of MPS, sort of low-hanging fruit, survey-easy types of things. You actually have a newsletter called R Before D for Research Before Design slash Development. So with someone with the experience you have, I'd love to hear if you wouldn't mind sharing some of the methods or techniques that you found to be particularly effective in conducting user research in that effort to make your business become customer-centric
2: yeah my world is definitely a qualitative one most of the surveys I run are screener surveys for people who I want to be in my qualitative research so I'm definitely qual focused usually I'm trying to do observational research where possible and then certainly interviews otherwise I don't do focus groups usually because there's too much groupthink and other problems there I don't a lot of surveys because I think surveys can be manipulated to say almost anything so typically I'm trying to watch people and really do that detective work watching people shutting up and watching them do the task and I think that tells us a lot more than a survey you know what do you want so that to me is the best way to go I'm also a fan of task analysis and I'm hoping Larry Marine's book will come out about that in the, in the next few months We're still working on it but But task analysis, I prefer over jobs to be done. And I think it's a good way, of course, it comes after observational and interview research. You can't, please don't just make up task analysis that, you know, don't make up anything, but definitely don't make up task analysis. And these are things that we love to do when you do these well, they not just tactical, they are strategic because then we've got a great understanding of people. We've got videos, we've got video clips, we've got things that help bring them to life. We do behavioral typologies, usually instead of personas. We might have the task analysis if it's relevant. We will have problem statements and we will have some high level ideas on what to do about those problem statements. And then we give our clients actionable advice on a direction they might want to go with products and or services. So to me, there's so much you can do with good qualitative research, especially generative to set projects and teams up for success and to help your teammates make better decisions and come up with better strategies and really to help the whole team prioritize because sometimes it's oh what should we work on first what does the business want okay but where's the user in that conversation can't just be what the user wants it has to be a balance so yeah I apologize now I don't remember the question but the the type of research I love to do I think it was something about that is really that qualitative put your detective hat on and see the things that other people miss and I want to give you a quick example we did a project recently having to do with a financial topic I can't say too much but it was a financial topic personal finance of the people we met we found that a few of them just weren't motivated to do a better job with this aspect of their personal finances life is too wild job keeps changing move to a new city pandemic, whatever, not a priority for them right now. So we created a typology for that group and we felt that there wasn't much that we could do for that group right now. This group just didn't really have this financial topic on their mind map and there was probably nothing we were going to do to get them to care about this. The client did a little bit of their own research and they came back and they said, we found that the problem was motivation. Didn't you find that the problem was motivation? motivation. I said, motivation is the outside of the onion. Motivation is probably not the real problem. There's usually something that is under motivation that causes what what looks like a lack of motivation, but is really some other thing. So while we could have said, Hey, here's a group of people. They're just unmotivated. They need more motivation, you know, build a platform to motivate people around this financial topic. We said, we understand why they're not motivated. They're not motivated because this isn't a priority. There's too many other things happening in these people's lives where this is not going to happen and a platform or a tool or a system to motivate them more wouldn't change that. And to me that's an example of the quality of research where we can really get at the roots there in the foundations and say, "Sure, this looks like motivation on the outside for the people in this group, but it's really about this is not a priority in my life right now." And for the rest of the people we met who were in four other groups, it was a priority and they were doing what they could about it with different degrees of success and different ways of going about it. So we're really hoping the client doesn't try to build some sort of motivation platform because we think that they're going to be looking at the first trees of the forest and not the whole forest.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all of this. And uh, I would like to say that thinking of what you just said as a real problem, let's say it like this, it can be hard, especially when you're starting to understand what's the real problem and what's the problem on the surface or uh, the general problem. And talking about this, how does someone understand the difference between the both?
2: Yeah. So usually what I say is, have you found the root cause? Can you go any deeper on on this. Can I go any deeper on this isn't a priority for these people at this time? I don't think I can go any deeper on that. That is like the root cause. The root cause is they don't care about this right now at this point in their lives. They probably will later because it's personal finance and eventually this topic will be important to them. Not important. Can't make it important. So the question would be, have I really found the root cause? Because motivation can look like the root cause. Or sometimes, especially with personal finance, a lot of people will say people aren't financially literate, so they need better financial education. You'll see that one thrown around. So the problem is motivation and financial literacy are still not the root cause. Go deeper. And so that would be my question is, are you sure you're deep enough? Can you ask why? And you're done. But if I say to the client or to anybody, oh, you found that people weren't motivated, why weren't Aren't they motivated? Oh, we just thought they weren't motivated and we needed to find a way to motivate them. No, there's a why, which means there's another layer to this. Why Mm is not this a priority for them right now? Life happened. We get it. I don't think we can go any deeper on that one, but why aren't they motivated? There's an answer there. That means you didn't find the root cause yet. What about financial literacy? Why aren't they financially literate or why aren't they understanding some of the education educational tools that are out there there's an answer to that financial literacy isn't the root Pause. You're not there yet, so see if you can ask why and go another layer or another ten layers.
1: I like that answer, and I like that sometimes the answer is, well, life happens. Like it is what it is. No other research, no o- there's n- no other tasks or artifacts or initiatives that are going to move the needle on this piece of it. We have reached a thing, and we need to pivot as a company. This is not going to be a fit for these people, which is yeah, sometimes I mean,
2: basically we we said, look, you have four other groups groups. that we found we have four other behavioral typologies that you can serve with three of them being a sweet spot these people are the end of the bell curve but these people will eventually care about this and they'll move into group two and then you have a chance of them being interested in the ecosystem we've suggested that you create because we went from research to product strategy on this project so those are future clients they're just not they're the future customers or users they're just not current users because they don't care not thinking about it at all you know and we can think about these things in our lives we all know people who would like to lose weight but just are doing nothing about it it's just it hasn't become a priority and sometimes they do have health challenges and you think well it must be important to them they have health challenges they're supposed to quit smoking it just isn't important to them at this time it hasn't become a priority and if all of the other things in their life putting pressure on them hasn't changed that our wacky little app is probably not going to change that either it's better for us to focus on the people who are trying to make a change we're in the process of making the change what are they doing and how can we better support them sometimes you just can't take the end of the bell curve people and stick them into the middle of the bell curve
1: yeah. Which takes a lot of knowing your users and knowing your product and knowing the fit and who doesn't fit and then being okay with that, right? right. And just being okay that's not the direction we're going. Even if that means a massive strategy pivot or someone's great idea doesn't pan out, which we we say all these things. And as we're talking, I'm realizing we're saying all these things, they sound like common sense, but sometimes in real life scenarios, they're easy to forget in an odd way. I don't know what happens to us, but.
2: I think people (laughs) fall in love with their ideas. And Mm -hmm. so people go, yeah, but we can motivate people to financial topic, boop, bop, beep, And it's like, well, what do you know about that? You know, that was another thing I said to our financial topic client, I said, your competitors all have chief behavioral scientists on their staff. You don't have behavioral scientists on your staff. You have a CTO and you have a fintech guy and you have this person and that person and it's a startup. Okay. So it's still a small staff, but if you're trying to go in this direction related to this human experience, we think you need behavioral scientists. And I think that's another thing is people just go, ah, well, you know, we'll, we'll motivate people someone sent me a LinkedIn post where they said like stop telling people to stop buying Starbucks to save money because chances are depending upon how many Starbucks you're buying you might just save a few hundred dollars a year and usually the difference between somebody putting away amazing savings and not putting away amazing savings is probably not Starbucks and you end up just creating deprivation now okay do you understand depriving people of things. Uh, Well, I can certainly speak to that. I went on super crash diet before my wedding and didn't eat carbs for a few months and then, you know, lost a few pounds, not enough, but whatever, got married and then ate every carb in sight for like two months and put on noticeable weight. Now trying to take it off again. If you deprive people, you just end up in those cycles. And at least with respect to finances, and I know we've gone down a little rabbit hole, but respect, it's true for other things as well. You can't say, oh, well, if you want to save money, stop getting your nails done. Great. Congratulations. That's a hundred dollars in a year. You didn't spend. I mean, it, you can't fix people's problems by telling them to deprive themselves of things they think they deserve. If they don't have a dangerous habit, like, oh, you know, it would help your savings. If you didn't have a cocaine habit, okay, that could probably help your savings and other things but you know outside of that I don't want to tell people they can't buy themselves a nice coffee or take a weekend away I don't want to do that because I know that on the other side of that is going to be someone who goes I deserve good things and then overspends it's a wavy wave and and that's we have to remember natural human behavior we can't just say buy less Starbucks become a millionaire Right. Yeah. First off I can't imagine not eating carbs while eating while living in Italy. So
1: I just wanted to comment that. <laughs> but also yeah, like, completely it's true. true. <laughs> yeah. In my work, and my practice as a product designer, that's my title. And it's easy to think because I'm in this product, I'm thinking about it all the time and the way we want to do things. And we have an idea about making something better in the products. It's, sometimes it's hard to forget to step back and be like, okay, the humans who are using my products spend most of their time. I think it's been said, maybe Nielsen Norman group said this, I'm not sure. They spend most of their time on other people's websites, right? Like I am a speck right. in someone's day. All of the my professional energy going into this product, it is a speck in someone else's day. And we have to the waves and ebbs and flows of the emotions and other things that these humans using our products are going to experience, not just that they're going to be these neutral people that I can imprint my perfect product on, <laughs> right? Yes, I love that uh, aspect of that. It's always interesting to think about where the industry is headed. Back in 2021, you wrote an article predicting where the industry might be in two years, and you recently revisited those predictions to see what's come about. And you also made some new predictions about the future of the industry. And one thing that stood out to me, and these predictions, these are all on your, I think it's your Medium newsletter, Mm -hmm. uh, the R B four D. If people want to go find those, they're very interesting. There's a lot of great things there. And one thing that stood out reading those were your points about accountability and your, I feel like this should have a little trademark, but asperologies, one of your fun words. I'll I'll actually let you describe that. So you can describe those ones, but I'm really curious. You made some connections between those two things, accountability and asperologies, and patterns of corporate behavior that we're all kind of observing right now. So if you wanted to speak to defining those and then the relationship between accountability and asperologies and where you think we're headed.
2: Sure. Accountability is supposed to be people uh, being held responsible for things that go right or wrong very often at least in the old days there were all kinds of things that could happen to someone if they were responsible for something that went wrong let's just look at the negative side of this to save time so like if you are responsible for a project that goes really badly it goes over time it goes over budget customers are unhappy everything's all messed up someone was supposed to be responsible for that someone made that led to those problems. Now you could hold the team responsible, you could hold one person responsible, but I'm finding that nobody's being held responsible. I'm finding that nobody seems to be in trouble when our projects are a mess, when they go over time, when they go over budget, when we find out that customers aren't happy, customers are leaving, customers have angry tweets, customer support's phone is ringing off the hook because people are confused or hitting dead ends. Nobody's in trouble. That's the same person who drove that project straight into hell will not be in any trouble at all. They won't be put on a performance improvement plan. They won't be fired. They won't have their budget cut. They won't be demoted. And I think something should happen because the problem is if we don't have that accountability, if nothing can happen to you when poop hits a fan and everything goes wrong, why bother being good? I can be awful. I can not care. I can be irresponsible with money. I can be irresponsible with our customers and nothing will happen, doesn't matter. And that of course leaves people thinking, holy cats, I can really do whatever the hell I want. And add that to how many people don't stay at companies very long. And by the time you want to hold someone responsible, they're not even there. So the way this matches up with Asperologies is Asperologies is my made up word to encompass fake UX. UX theater, they aspire to be methodologies and methods, but they really miss the mark or they work against us. So instead of being a methodology, I like to call them an aspirology because they're aspiring to be something that that they never quite become. And for me, the key aspirologies are design thinking, design sprints, lean UX, and democratizing UX or saying anybody can do our jobs, whether or not they're good at them, whether or not they know what they're doing, etc. And to me, most of these things would not have taken off the way that they have if we had accountability. Let's say you're a product manager. You love design thinking. You think design thinking is so cool. You want to run lots of design thinking exercises and workshops. And we're going to use design thinking because whoa, you can really solve problems with that and innovate. Did we ever check back on that? We spent time and money on design thinking. Did we solve problems? Did we we understand problems? Did we innovate? Did we invent anything? Probably not. Someone should have been held responsible for whatever the heck we spent on design thinking. Now you could say, but design thinking, you gotta try it. Okay, but you could have tried it. And then a month later said, wow, not these things seem fun, but nothing's really coming out of this. It's not working. And in fact, maybe bad things are happening. We're not bringing new things to market. We didn't innovate and our best UX people are quitting because we've circumvented them. So maybe we wouldn't have so much design thinking and fake UX if people were held accountable. There are people who are running lots of design sprints. Do the design sprints create products that go to market? Do these products really help the company? Did we make untold millions? Whatever it is, I personally don't care, but what happened after all these design sprints? Other than we had fun. We basically stopped working for a week and we did everything play Twister on the floor. And boy, was that fun. But what really happened after that design sprint? Did that idea go nowhere? Did we burn more time on it? Did it go to market? Was it an innovation? Did we steal from the competitor? There, without accountability, we'll just keep doing design sprints. Because chances are nobody wants to draw accountability to themselves. Probably nobody wants to say, hi, I'm the person who brought designs sprints into the company. We've now been doing them for a year, and you know what? They suck 80% of the time. I did it! Nobody wants to be that person, but nobody's holding these people accountable. And so I think that accountability would change everything for UX overnight. Because as I say, in every interview I do, I've never been held accountable at any job I had, and I'd love to be, because if I were held accountable, if someone says, Hey, I'm not sure Debbie's designs were very good. And now we have problems with the customer. I would say, great. Let's start asking why and get to the root causes. Why were my designs not as. good?" as they could be. Oh, because you gave me two days. You gave me two days. You didn't give me any good research data and you didn't want me to usability test them. You wanted me to make the fastest guess I could. So congratulations. You wanted to hold me accountable, but now I'm going to point over here to the product manager or the project manager who never, who planned a project without asking me how much time I need and gave me way less time than I need. Want to hold me accountable? You can't hold me accountable without holding accountable the person who didn't give me the time and resources I need to do a better job. So the whole world changes instantly if we ever have any accountability come back. Because people who are bad at UX won't won't want to do it. Because when they do their crappy research and they do their crappy designs, they're going to be held accountable. They're going to have their budgets cut. They're going to be put on a performance improvement plan. going to be demoted. They might even be fired. If these things could happen to you, maybe you'd want to stay out of someone else's job and go, you know what? I should probably let the qualified people do this thing because if I do it and I don't do a good job of it, something bad could happen to me. But while nothing bad can happen to you, whatever the hell, why not let me write backend database code? Let's just, everybody do everything. Okay hey, thank you so much for sharing all of this and throughout
0: the whole conversation, I would like to just say that we are nearing our the end of the episode. But before we go, I would like to take all the nuggets that you shared and ask one question, which is, would you like to share any final thoughts or message to the people listening right now?
2: Yeah, I think that what I want to remind people is if you're listening to this, you probably want to make change in your organization and you might not be able to. They're setting their way There is no accountability. So why change? If you want to help your company change, you're going to have to find the scary stories, the project we don't want to talk about, the don't mention that project project. And we're going to have to dig up the money we wasted and the time we wasted. We're going to have to say, we don't want that to happen again. We could do better than this. And congratulations, we went fast on that. But remember what happened after that. And remember, it might not even be your job to create change you might have to go to a manager and say I need your help on this I can't make this change myself I can't really fight for this myself I'm just a junior a mid-level whatever so you might have to bring other people in on this find allies maybe the product manager wasn't happy with how that disaster project went either maybe the engineering lead is still bothered at how much of engineering's time was wasted and that had to come out of their budget look for the allies and know that if you can't make change it's not your fault. It's not because you're bad at this. There are a lot of companies that resist change because nobody wants to talk about the truth. I don't care what they claim their company values are. They don't want to talk about the truth. So remember, you might not be able to make change there, Work on finding the allies, work with your manager and see what small things you can bring in. Are you not doing any usability testing? Try to start doing some. Are you doing usability testing? Try to do more. Are you doing no generative research? Start doing some. When people come back with their survey results, ask people why. Ask people if we have enough information for designers to know what to do. No, we don't. Okay, we need better research that doesn't come from a survey and doesn't come from calling people up and saying, what do you like? So look for small new growth areas and you can't change everything overnight usually. So a little more usability testing. Hire another designer. Stop worrying so much about the UI. Worry more about the usability, the information architecture. Get some real researchers in, let them do their thing. Stop asking them to run fast surveys. So look for the small changes you can make and partner with the people in your company who are struggling, they're missing their goals, they're not making their KPIs, the business expected them to do something and they didn't do it or it didn't happen, go find ways that you can prove the value of what you do by being a good partner to someone who needs help.
1: Perfect, and one other thing they could do is also listen and read from (laughs) the the many sources your insights that you put out there so they can find you. Well, maybe we could just let you, if someone wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you?
2: Yeah, certainly you can uh, can start on the Delta CX website, which is deltacx.com. That's got information about our online community, which includes Slack and Discord and the YouTube channel, where we have over 700 hours of videos. So if you have a topic on your mind, go to YouTube and write Delta CX and a couple of keywords and see what comes up and please subscribe. We've got the medium articles, which as Maria was saying, come out as rbefored.com. You can follow that publication or you can just follow me as a medium author. Let's see. And the Delta CX website will also drive you to the Delta CX media site, which is our book and our workshops. So there's live courses and stuff you can take. with us and it'll also drive you to the customer centricity website, customercentricity.com. That's more about the services that my company offers. So if you're listening and you feel like, wow, we need some training from Deb. We need a workshop. We need some consulting. We need her to come help us do a thing. Yes, I do that. So, um, and we also do projects. If you're understaffed on CX or UX and you just need some project help, we do projects for companies as well. So I would say these are some of the key places where you'll find me. You'll also find me on LinkedIn. I don't always connect with a lot of people, but you can certainly press the follow button, but I am very active in our Slack community. Our Discord community is kind of quiet. I think it's like all of the lurkers are in one place, but our Slack community is decently active. So pick what you prefer, but they're all free. I just, I also want to make it clear that I'm not that person who's trying to monetize their followers or fan base or community, whatever you want to call it. You know, obviously YouTube Free, and that's where everything is. Slack and Discord are free. I do free portfolio reviews. Everybody gets a free coaching session with me. Beyond that, I do charge. My book is available. You can certainly pay for it. It's printed, it's audiobook, it's in other formats. But I do have a PDF and EPUB available on the Delta CX Media site for name your own price with as little as $1. So wherever you live, if you don't want to pay that much for my book, you can pay a dollar. So So I do my best to try to make things affordable for people around the world uh, because that's where the people are they're all over the world and we can't just think about the dollar and the euro and some of those currencies
0: thank you so much I really appreciate this time we ended our chat today with Debbie Levitt an amazing lady and we hope you enjoyed it so if you have suggestions questions or contributions please contact us on the website ladiesatux.com this episode was produced by Ladies at UX, edited by Luciana Borrasca and sponsored by Deploy, specialist in UX UI designer recruitment.